So there have always been uh, questions, and we've always had uh, options as to how we would answer those questions. To, to be more specific, there's always been big questions, uh, and we've always had multiple options as to how we might answer those. For, by big questions, I mean worldview questions, the biggest questions, the questions of ultimate meaning and purpose. Who am I? Where did I come from? What's expected of me? What happens when I die? What or who is the most important thing of all? And where do I go to get answers to the previous questions? And uh, when I talk about the options, I'm just noting that uh, there have been a variety of different options uh, over time. Uh, philosophies and religions, if we go to the first century or even before, we see there were a handful of philosophical choices. We could be a hedonist, we could be a stoic, we could be a platonist. Um, you come into the more recent times, we could be an existentialist or a nihilist or whatever the sort of amalgamation of all kinds of different ideas that are floating around out there, whatever you want to call that. And then in terms of religions, there, there have always been uh, a variety of options. In, in the last 15 years, as uh, globalization has sort of uh, taken hold of, of ideas and ideologies as well, uh, the number of sort of big options on the religious landscape has, has distilled itself. Um, we sort of have one from various quadrants. Um, so we have four rivals to Christianity, which is the, the world's largest religion. Uh, out of the East, we have Buddhism. Hinduism is actually bigger, but, um, and, and Hinduism is sort of radicalizing right now, but, but Hinduism doesn't show any signs that it's ever going to leave India. It's, uh, the, the caste system is sort of a tough sell. Um, so in the East, it's Buddhism. Um, Coming out of uh, the Middle East and North Africa would be Islam. It's the, the world's second largest religion, and it's growing more rapidly than Christianity, although it's growing pretty exclusively by uh, biological growth, by Muslims having babies. That's slowing down. There's, there's not that many people who convert to Islam. There certainly are some. Uh, but So we have Islam. Um, out of Western Europe, we have um, secularism, really, uh, and secularism is, interestingly, the number of people who identify as secular is going down. Secular people tend not to have uh, children, and that's important if you want to sort of, you know, gain market share. But secularism is, is actually gaining an influence in, in the West, in, in newsrooms and universities and other things. So you've got secularism. Uh, and then um, in, in the U.S., I, I would say the big uh, sort of offering right now would be, the, again, the, the sort of eclectic path, the, um, uh, the spiritual but not religious idea, um, what Robert Bella referred to as Sheilaism in his book. And this is just, you know, sort of whatever we make up. It's a little bit of sort of some Christian ideas with reincarnation and capitalism and uh, Ayn Rand and whatever's big in Hollywood and uh, the Chicago Cubs and it just sort of all gets thrown together and, and it's not very internally consistent but that's sort of an option, that's a, a growing option. Um, we could make this more complicated than that but let's not, let's keep it simple and let's note that all of this stands uh, in contrast to the offer, to the uh, 
to what the Bible puts forward as a radically different and, and gloriously wonderful and, and frequently misunderstood offer of God reaching down to rescue us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is, um, it is, it's the gospel. It is uh, what Jesus fuels. And so the, the premise is that Jesus is God, always has been. At a certain point in time, he added humanity to deity uh, while remaining God. He became uh, fully human. That's called the incarnation. And um, so he enters the world through Mary, through a virgin's womb. He lives a perfect life. He fulfills the law. He teaches. He models. He, uh, he, he sort of sets things forward. And then uh, he dies. He dies in our place. He dies a, a substitutionary death to pay our moral debt so that we can be reconciled to God. Uh, religions are reaching up. Christianity says we can't reach up. We're too broken. We're dead. Uh, we can't save ourselves. God has to reach down, and we can um, accept this offer. So in this series, we have been looking at Jesus. In particular, out of the Gospel of John, we've been looking at the claims that Jesus makes about himself using this collection of um, <laughs> metaphors, uh, a rather odd collection at that. Um, he claims to be the good shepherd. He claims to be the resurrection. He claims to be the gate. He claims to be uh, the bread of life. Um, he claims to be all these different things. And, and I have been reinforcing this idea that Jesus, that this is a little surprising because Jesus lives simply. He, he is in so many ways uh, all about others. He's, he's humble. He's, uh, uh, he serves. He doesn't demand attention. He doesn't doesn't demand attention in terms of, uh, uh, of being propped up in that kind of a way. But at the same time, he's not retiring or modest when it comes to his claims. He claims to be God. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be the King of Kings. He claims to be the Creator. He claims to be eternal. He makes the biggest possible claims that anyone could make. And so in a variety of ways, um, he has been... Um, he has been issuing these big challenges to us to figure out what we're going to do with Jesus. He's unlike anyone else. He's unlike any other religious leader. Uh, you could have you could have Islam without Muhammad. You could have Buddhism without Buddha. You could have uh, you you could have a, uh, Judaism without Abraham or Moses because none of these uh, people are pointing to themselves. They're pointing to a path. They're pointing to insight. They're pointing to a, a, a way forward, uh, a set of ideals. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus points to himself. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So today we look at the, uh, the last of the claims. It's actually the second in the sequence, but the last uh, as we have taken them, the seventh claim. And this is uh, the metaphor in which Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And it comes in John chapter 8, uh, starting with verse 12. There's a handful of verses here. So in, in the first part of the Gospel of John, excuse me, in the first part of John, the Gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus has a, a little interchange with 
the religious leaders who are trying to trap him. They're always trying to trap him. Uh, and it never works. It's, 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 it's actually, it's not a fair fight. Uh, and it's sort of comical uh, at one level. It reminds me um, of like playing hide and seek with, uh, with a really young child where they, uh, they hide by closing their eyes <laughs> and they think you can't see them. Or uh, they hide, uh, you hide, and then when they finally find you, um, uh, often because you've called them to find you, then they love your hiding place and they immediately go into it and they say, okay, I'm hiding now, you come find me. And you know, you're like, okay, well, uh, there you are, uh, a foot away from me, hiding in exactly the place I hid. It's almost like that. I mean, Jesus can see what they're doing, uh, and he's always very deftly, brilliantly uh, answering their questions, catching them in their, their, their thinking. And here it's not just masterful how he sort of outwits them. It, there's this, um, they're, they're bringing a woman that's been caught in adultery, and they want to know what he's going to do uh, to her, and, you know, is he going to, you know, it, it's a trap. But Jesus... Um, he just says, you know, okay, well, let's have the first, uh, the first stone thrown by the one who doesn't have any sins. So he sort of calls them out, and he deals with them very brilliantly, but then he deals with her very graciously, but sternly. You know, he, he calls her forward. He forgives her. I'm not going to condemn you, but go and sin no more. So uh, that's what we have, and then we get to this section here. So John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. So in Jewish law, uh, there had to be two witnesses in a courtroom. There had to be two people testifying. So they're saying, look, you know, you're your only, you're your only source. This, this isn't a valid claim. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Uh, I am one with, um, I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where's your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple uh, courts near the place where the offerings were put in, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So what, what we have here is uh, sort of a setup for the longer uh, debate that will, this debate will keep going. And, and eventually, at the end of this little uh, exchange, Jesus will make the biggest claim that he makes in this whole I Am series. It's the one that we looked at at the very beginning, uh, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And he, he takes the, the covenant name of God, the, the tetragrammaton, the, the holy name of God, so holy that the Jews wouldn't say it, and he claims it as his own. 
And, um, and so that's, um, that's, again, the biggest claim that he makes. But today we're looking at this, um, I think, perhaps the, the, the richest metaphor as far as, um, as far as this series goes. We're looking at his claim to be uh, light. And um, it stands alongside the others, you know, bread and uh, resurrection and gate and all these. But I think it, it might be the richest. So, from a contemporary standpoint, we, we know more. I mean, we can, we can sort of see greater richness in this claim to be the light of the world than they would have because we've just learned more about light. I mean, we know that it's the source of life. If there was no sun, right, life would cease. We know um, that uh, without light, people get depressed. Uh, they, get, they get sad, technically. Uh, we know that... Um, unmediated light is too much and that if there's just sheer light that we would um, we would uh, go blind or if there was no ozone layer to sort of diffuse some of the light that we would we would get cancer and we would die that way Um, I could go on we know that light is mysterious because it's a particle and it's a wave and we don't really understand how it can be both at the same time Um, but we don't have to rely on sort of new insights on from science on light uh, light just, it, it just, it, it, it illuminates itself in a, uh, I suppose in a bad pun. I mean, we know that light allows us to see what is really there and that uh, we use light, you know, the dark ages are when things supposedly are, are suppressed and enlightenment is when we have insight and we see uh, what is actually true. And then um, in all, in addition to all this, we can go to the Bible and see all the different ways that uh, light gets associated with God or that there's, there's power behind light. So, I mean, light starts in the very beginning. In Genesis, we see that one of the very first things that God is doing is he's, you know, he's separating the light and the darkness. But um, not only do we have that, but, but we see that when God shows up, things are bright. When, when God goes past Moses, he's so bright that, uh, that Moses has to be tucked into the crevice of the rock and that even days later, Moses is still, um, has to veil his face because he's, he's reflecting still the, the brilliant light of God. We know that uh, when Jesus appears to Saul on the Damascus Road and uh, knocks him down, that he appears as a blinding light brighter than the sun that Saul cannot um, stand up against. We see uh, light being used when Jesus is transfigured, um, that, that uh, he's there with uh, Elijah and Moses, and, and that Jesus is so brilliant that his clothes are you know, glowing. They're lit up because this light is coming out of Jesus. In the book of Revelation, it says that in heaven there is no sun, but there is also no shadow because the brilliance of Jesus, who is the source of light, is lighting up uh, all of heaven. Um, we could go on. Uh, in John 1, it, it talks, at the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness does not overcome it. So we see John the Baptist is going to come and he's going to offer testimony uh, to the light. And so um, 
there's all these different references in Scripture to the idea that, um, that light is sort of associated with God and it's being associated with Jesus and it's powerful. And so in order to appreciate the magnitude of the claim that Jesus makes here in John 8, we, we, um, we have to understand all that is going on. So one of the clues would be in verse uh, 20 of chapter 8 where it says that after Jesus makes this claim, it says that they did not seize him. Some translations say they did not kill him, which you're like, okay, well, why would they have done that? Well, they understood the full context uh, of what's going on and just, again, how audacious this claim is that Jesus is making. So you have to understand what's going on is that, is that this interchange is taking place uh, during uh, the, the time of the festival of the tabernacle. Or it's also called the festival of the booths or the festival uh, of the shelters. It was one of three of the big religious holidays that Jewish males were expected to go to Jerusalem, to travel to Jerusalem in order to be there in person for this event. And it was, uh, it was a celebration of... Um, of the harvest. It took place in the fall. It's a celebration of the harvest, but it's more than that. It's a celebration of God leading the, the Jews through the desert and keeping them alive. And if you go back to the book of Exodus, um, you see that, as, I think it's Exodus 13, you see that God is leading them, and by day he's a cloud, which cloud, on the one hand, you sort of, sort of gives the idea that, okay, they're in the desert, Clouds would be a welcome uh, respite from the brutal sun. I've been in that desert, and after about five minutes, you're, you're, you're dying. So, but also cloud is, is also uh, a term often that refers to the glory of God. So somehow during the day, God manifests his nearness and his presence uh, in a cloud. But then at night, he provides light because he is a fire. And so what we've got here. Um, is, that, is that they're celebrating, they're remembering this festival. Jesus is, is speaking at the time of this festival with them. They are remembering this festival. And during the festival, they would have a big candelabra in front of the altar. Until the last night, and this gets a little bit more complicated, but that Jesus, or Ezekiel sees the, you know, the glory leaving, and so they... they in tying that all together, the last night of the festival of the booths, festival of tabernacles, festival of shelters, it gets called all those things, as I said. Um, and the last night of that, they blow out the candelabra. It's not lit up. So the point is, uh, it's on that night that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Right? You, don't need, you don't need this candelabra. You don't, you don't need a prophet. You don't need anything. You don't need a moral law. You don't, you don't need a tabernacle. You don't need a temple. You don't need, you don't need sacrifices. I am the light of the world. Right? He's putting himself in the place of God manifested his presence years ago um, during this time as a fire, as a light to light up the night and to keep you going and to provide protection for you. I am the immediate presence of God 
I am here. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will uh, have the light of life. And so um, (laughs) Jesus makes, yet again, a big claim, bigger than we thought at first. He makes a huge claim. And and there's a second part of this, if you, if you really sort of reflect on this verse. The second part of the verse is also shocking, and it, it, it is in keeping with the magnitude of the claim. He's not only claiming to be the light of the world. He's saying, and you need to follow me. Like, you need uh, to yield to me. You had better um, get in line. Um, you had better heed my He is making demands that he is the path forward. Get out of the darkness and become my apprentice. You know, if if you follow me, if you receive me, then um, you will live in the light. Now, it's worth noting uh, that we, when we're doing something wrong, we want to keep it in the dark. And some of you have things that you're trying to keep in the dark. Keep uh, hidden from your spouse, uh, your neighbor, your boss. Keep in, hidden from, uh, maybe trying to keep it hidden from yourself. But uh, it's worth noting that that does not work. So, um, Temporarily, maybe, but uh, God knows all things, and the darkness is going to be overcome by the light. And the Bible tells us that everything will be revealed. Uh, And even in this life, things often come out and are often manifest. So there is a call here to live a life of integrity. (laughs) There is a call here to be the same person uh, in private that we are in public. So let me just note a couple things here as I sort of head for the finish line at communion weekend. Uh, Let me say to those of you who are Christians, uh, we are called uh, to follow the light, and we are called to be little Christs. Some people use that term. We're called to be disciples. We're called to be his people, his children, and that means that we are, uh, we are going to um, bring light as well. It's not always welcome. Um, sometimes it's not welcome because we're, we're just self-righteous jerks about it. Uh, other times it's not welcome because when we try to live in the light, that exposes the darkness that other people are feeling, their own guilty conscience and other things. Um, but, but understand there is this, there is this call to be people of integrity, to be people who live in the light, to embrace and to follow. It's not just enough to say Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, We need to follow the light. So let me say something now to those of you who are um, not yet Christians. By your own understanding, you're not Christians. I I was reading this week about uh, Spurgeon. He's a great um, 18th or 19th century um, British uh, preacher. Uh, very powerful, as, as a young man, uh, big ministry in London. And, uh, but uh, he comes to faith as a young man. He's, he's miserable. He goes into a church, 
Uh, it's a small church, and there's nobody there except one man who's not, uh, not the pastor. But this man, for whatever reason, I didn't get a lot of details in the story, this man preaches a sermon uh, out of uh, the book of Isaiah. And um, about all he does is read the text, and the text says, Look to me and be saved, all ye uh, at the ends of the earth. And he preaches this message, and he's just, just calling on you know, people. There's only Spurgeon there. <laughs> calling on people uh, to, to look to the light, to look to Jesus, to reach out to him and to be saved. And, and he finishes. And then uh, he walks up to Spurgeon, and he says, Young man, it's obvious. You're miserable. And you need God. Like, you should come and place your faith in Jesus Christ right now. And Spurgeon who uh, had been trying, again, he'd been miserable. He tried moralism, right, just trying to be a good person, and that, you know, just doesn't work very long. We can barely keep our own standards, let alone God's. He'd gone into some mysticism and other things, and finally the light went on about who was the light, and uh, he made a decision for Christ. So I want to say, some of you are, I don't know, you're, you're looking around, you're waiting, you're, you're I, I don't know. But I want to say, uh, there is no better offer. There's nothing close that, that compares to the fact that God loves you and he sent his son to rescue you. Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus, uh, the bread of life. Jesus, uh, the, the, the lamb of God. Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Jesus, the light of the world. He sent his son for you. And the way forward is for you to run to the light. The way forward is for you to receive Christ. And he's not humble about this demand. So I, I open the sermon by saying we've got options, and we do. There are big questions, right? Everybody's, everybody's trying to answer consciously, subconsciously these big questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? What's expected of me? What happens when I die? Uh, what am I supposed to be about? Everybody has is, is got some sort of answers, often not very good, answers to these questions. And Jesus brings the, the right answers. And, and it is that we are to reach out to him. So you've got options. But these options do not go on forever. Uh, so I would say don't delay. Like, Jesus is very clear. Right? He is. He is in so many ways. He is a servant. He is gentle. He is meek. He is, uh, he is loving and gracious. But he is also strong. And he is bold. And he is courageous. And he says, if you want your sins to be forgiven, if you want me to die in your place, if you want me to be your Savior and Lord, then accept and move with me. Come to me. And follow me. So I'm going to pray, give you a chance to accept Christ right now, and then we are going to head into communion. If, if you would like to make a decision for Christ today, I want to encourage you to say exactly that. Uh, to say, Heavenly Father, I, uh, I am coming now. I'm stepping and putting my weight down. I am, I am closing other options. I am I am moving towards your son, the Messiah. Jesus, I am coming to you. Um, there's no one like you. 
and uh, I need a Savior. I don't simply need a coach. I don't simply need a teacher. Uh, I need somebody who's going to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I am broken. I am sinful. I do need to be forgiven. I want to be forgiven. I want to be reconciled. And so, Jesus, I call out to you. Save me, even me, broken as I am. And uh, help me to live increasingly like you and to live in the light. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.